Hi, it's Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to episode 322. Continuing on our uh, series of beginning of the woodworker in England, beginning of woodworkers in the world. So this episode is going to focus on paneling and interior woodwork. First, we're going to talk about the small panel. So the use of wood either as wainscoting or for paneling in the covering of walls, dates no earlier than from the close of the 15th century. The Great Hall, double-sided screen, which barred from the hall itself the passage leading from the entrance door to the buttery. This passage is always referred to as the, the screens in documents of the time which is identical in construction with much of the later paneling, is considerably older than this and shows that the knowledge of framing and paneling was very early in the history of English woodwork. Similarly, we have the same principle in rood and cancel screens in the paneled flanks at the back of church altars. Of room wainscoting, we have none prior to about, say, 18... Or 1480, if as early. Church woodwork and great hall screens were undoubtedly the work of the carpenter exclusively, but there are many reasons for supposing the secular room paneling was often made by the Arkwright, which we talked about that. He was the individual that made chest. He was the chest maker, the, the dower chest maker, the traveling chest maker, the uh, the commode, the chest of drawers maker. So there are obvious causes for the inadaptability of paneling in churches and sacred edifices. The church plan is divided into nave, chancel, aisles, and chapels, in which outer walls, available as a rule, only in aisles and chapels, are broken up only by windows, and the free wall spaces are utilized for memorial tablets, tombs, and subsidiary altars. The walls of the chancel are nearly always devoted to screen work, stalls, or choir seats, and at a later date, to the pipe organs. Clerical houses usually affected a severe simplicity, except as in the instance of William of Wycombe, a great prelate where the walls would be adorned with arras and painted cloths. In his will, dated 1403, he leaves to Robert Braybrook, Bishop of London, his silk bed and the whole suite of tapestries in his palace of Winchester. With a laity, the great hall was also ill-adapted for paneling, owing to its height and fenestration, which to those unaware means its window placement. And it is only when domestic privacy was attained when rooms had become smaller and of lesser height, when plaster ceilings had replaced open roofs of timber, that paneling or wainscoting began to replace walls that were bare or painted or hung with cloths or tapestries. The term wainscoting, wainscoting, is here used to indicate a close-boarded covering of a wall without either framing or panels, the medieval equivalent of the modern matchboarding.
It may be incorrect to use the word in this way, but to do so makes clear the distinction between it and wall paneling. It, was already, it has already been pointed out that uh, we do not know how general may have been the use of plaster painted with figure or floral subjects before paneling became the general rule. There are many reasons for why the presence of plaster and paint would hardly be suspected. Whereas with paneling, even if covered with canvas and reams of wallpaper, the woodwork at present is almost certain to be discovered when the wall is pulled down. It is only within recent years that the attention has been directed toward the possibility of these wall hangings being present under later papers, paneling or whitewash, and has led to the more careful demolition of old houses, with the result that a number of these painted walls had been discovered, one from a house in Stodmarsh in Kent, and the subject of Diana and Acatron is not one which would have been painted on the walls of a Labrador's cottage. The date is probably as late as the early 16th century. To judge by the costume of Acton, it cannot well be any earlier. Oak was the timber generally used for wall paneling up to the end of the 17th century, but imported woods such as walnut and memel deal, the former is not an English timber before 1650, as it was planted in England for the first time in 1565 by the Earl of Pembroke and Montgomery at Wilton Park near Salisbury, near the Salisbury Cathedral. And these are known in comparatively early times. There is, or was, a room panel with deal with close framing and small panels in the oak manor of the time at Parnham Park, Bedminster in Dorset in the room known as the King Chambers, which dates either from the last years of the 16th or very shortly thereafter. There are records also in which these deal rooms or deal panels are mentioned and they are evidently highly prized. At Rotherwise in Herefordshire, there existed until the last 20 years another room from 1640 paneled in walnut of foreign origin, either Dutch or German, but the actual work was unmistakably English. These, however, are so exceptional that it may be stated almost as a definite fact that quartered oak was the usual wood for paneling until the last decade of the 17th century. So we have already seen the inaccuracy of assuming knowledge to be non-existent because it is not exhibited at any given period. For example, we find wallboarding or wainscoting at an earlier date than paneling, and the latter indicates a higher stage of development than the former. Yet we cannot assume that the woodworker of the time had to discover the art of framing and paneling, even if he personally was obviously unacquainted with the mortise and in its tenon. We know that this knowledge was possessed by the woodworking trades as early as the 14th century. What we do not know is whether the carpenter, who represented the highest degree of skill and transition of the time, made this early paneling and wainscoting, or whether this type of work was left to the lesser craftsman, 
the Arkwright or the Huchier, or to give the latter name which begins to come into use in the first years of the 16th century, the Joyer, or the, eventually became the Joiner. Paneling may be said to coincide with the last years of the 15th century. In its inception, at the bridge, therefore, the Gothic and the Renaissance, the bridge between them. If we accept the earliest date of the Renaissance in England as 1509, the year when Henry VIII ascended the English throne as the second of the Tudor line, he begins at once to repair the tomb of his father in Westminster Abbey, displacing Master Pagany and appointing the Italian soldier of fortune, Pietro Terragamo, thus rejecting the Gothic that Italian soldiers of fortune. And accepting this new style, then there remained only some 20 years during which the Gothic paneling could have been made, a very short time. There are three patterns which may be said to belong to this Gothic period, the last two of which carry us into the Renaissance. The first is purely Gothic wallboarding, without tongue-and-groove joints. The boards merely nailed to the wall, and the butt joints marked with an applied tracery. This is an exceedingly rare. Only one example has been discovered up to the present date. But that does not prove how much or how little of this work may have been done at a time and replaced later by framing and paneling or destroyed in subsequent demolitions. The one example we have seen is painted in the same manner as the base of a fine chancel or room screen. But there are reasons for supposing that much of the oak paneling and even the furniture of the 15th century if not also much of that of the 16th, was originally painted, decorated, or lacquered. I have seen examples in which the painted decoration appears to be original. The second pattern is the curved rib or vine panel, of which many varieties are to be found, all possessing the same basic idea. The third is the linen fold, one of my favorites, as it and as it is, and with the carved rib, maybe have evolved in the same way, they may be here or treated together equally. The curved rib is rare in company with Renaissance details, but the linen fold is much more common. It belongs, in fact, more to the Renaissance than to the Gothic. Nearly all decorative motives begin with having some useful purpose, and both the curved rib and the linen fold panels may have commenced in the same way. As everyone knows, to insert a panel into a groove of a frame necessitates chaffering the former, or actually making it thin enough to allow the insertion in the groove. With the, with the framing, the styles and the rails, which are rarely as much as one inch in thickness, the groove cannot be much more than one quarter of an inch, and a panel of this thinness might easily bulge or split. It is usual, therefore, to make a third scouter and to plane the borders down to the requisite thickness to permit of its insertion into the framing grooves. This chamfer in early woodwork is generally very broad, often enough for the two slopes to meet at the center in the ridge. A panel chamfered in this way with a central rib 
will stand better than one of full thickness, unchamfered. This would soon be discovered in the Middle Ages when the greatest attention was paid to the proper cutting or quartering and seasoning of timber. There are many examples of this central rib on the backs of panels, especially in church doors, which from their exposed situation would be prone to warp and split in time. From the central ridge of the back to the bringing of this feature to the front, making a decorative device out of it would be only a step, and the next stage would be the vertical molding of the panel front in the form that we know of it as linen fold. It is certain that this imitation of the folding of linen was not devised until much later, as there are many examples to prove this fact. The early vertical molded panels have the ribbing curved from top to bottom, which the result that the face of the panel must project over the framing moldings at the yarnscomb tomb. To get rid of this overhang, the moldings would have to be cut back. This cutting would be given a decorative form and the linen fold would result. Were the folding of the linen, or more properly, the creasing of parchment is deliberately imitated, such examples are always late, after 1500 at least. In the great hall screen of Brightly in Devon, uh, which is late 15th century work, there are early examples of linen fold panels which bear little resemblance to the actual folding of any material, possessing, if anything, rather a heraldic significance of the one based on the natural forms that we find more often. The central rib or the vine panel may have evolved in such the same way, the rib being diverted to form another kind of device but retaining its stiffening property at the same time. So if we get a little too thin, we're losing that property and the panel may be prone to cup. The old Gothic tradition of making ornament um, serve as useful purpose would not die out quite easily. It is only with the Renaissance that decoration becomes purely and intentionally an adjunct to its construction. So shortly after around 1500, the full tide of the Renaissance sets, sets in, either from Italy direct or from the case of the tomb of Henry VII in Westminster Abbey, transmuted through France, and in the instance of Abbot Fuller's panels from Waltham Abbey, or at a much later date from Holland and the Low Countries, of which variation of the style, the overmantle from Lime Street in the City of London may be cited as an example. With much of the early work, the traditional influence of certain of the English countries is marked. A carved woodwork of Devonshire has a richness, almost barbaric, found in no other district. There is again a strong foreign influence in much of the work from the Welsh bordering countries. So all these uh, English isles had you know, variations on the same theme. The same is true in another way of some of the Lancashire work, each being unmistakable, undeniable to each region. These country characteristics are evidently the result of strong trade traditions of the time, as are the same peculiarities of the paneling from Barnstable 
and that from Exeter, although separated by the width of a country and the space of about 13 years. Space forbids further illustration, but it's time, and it could even be shown that in each district, rather than the, the country, possesses its own fashions, differing quite distinctively from one from the other. Thus the work, say, of East Anglia, the home co counties of Cheshire, Wirkeshire, Lancashire, Yorkshire, Kent, Devonshire, and the Welsh countries of Radenshire and Shropshire. Each has its own peculiar style in the 16th and more especially in the 17th century. Up to almost the close of the 17th century, all paneling has two definite features. The wood is oak, almost invariably, in the area of each panel is small. So small panels, a lot of style and rail, excessive widths. There are certain definite reasons why the large panel comes into fashion after this. These cannot be considered here, but in the requisite detail and must be reserved for the next episode. And that will be in just a few minutes. Greg Perry, the historic preservationist, signing out. Thanks for listening.